It's time for the annual membership drive for Neela, Illinois. Neela, Illinois' annual membership drive starts August 1st and runs through September 1st. Membership will make you a partner in the largest plaintiff site employment law firm in Illinois. We are also offering a two-for-one deal. Refer a new member, and when that new member signs up and names you, both you and the new member will get half off your dues for one year. If you're interested, please visit www.neela-illinois.org. Again, that is www.neela-illinois.org in August. Thank you. Welcome to Employee to Lawyer, the employment law podcast presented by Neela, Illinois, the podcast that discusses the policies, regulations, and laws that affect our workplaces, presented primarily from the perspective of employee or plaintiff side lawyers. We are your hosts, Ahmed Bindra and Max Barrett. We are members of the Board of Directors of Neela, Illinois, the Illinois chapter of the National Employment Lawyers Association, a nonprofit collection of attorneys who empower workplace rights. And welcome back to Employee to Lawyer, the employment law podcast. I'm Max Barrick. And I'm Ahmet Bindra. Hey, we got it. And today we're once again lucky enough to be talking to Professor Richard Gonzalez, my old teacher. For those who missed his first episode, I'd encourage you to go back and listen. To give you the short version of his bio, Professor Gonzalez has been at Chicago Kent's faculty teaching law school there since 1988. He received his bachelor's degree from Northwestern University and his law degree from Ohio State University. In addition to teaching, he has worked in private practice, worked for the Legal Assistance Foundation of Chicago, which has since changed names, and is an administrative law judge for the uh, State of Illinois Human Rights Commission. Professor Gonzalez has taught courses in employment discrimination, pretrial litigation, negotiations, alternative dispute resolution, among others, and has also been a frequent speaker and author on many topics. In 2013, Professor Gonzalez was inducted into the College of Labor and Employment Lawyers, the organization that recognizes the nation's top labor and employment lawyers. Professor Gonzalez, welcome back. Hey, thanks for having me back. I guess I didn't do anything too bad on the last one. And likewise, apparently this wasn't too painful. So thanks for coming back. Last time we talked just generally about your, your sort of life and history being an employment lawyer for the last 30 plus years. I have a feeling we're going to get to some good war stories again today just because you got quite a few of them. But we also wanted to talk a little bit about your career as an, just your career generally. So, you know, you've spent your entire career as an employment law attorney or professor. How did you end up in this place? I have, I have been the luckiest guy in the world when it comes to getting jobs. So when the students want me to give them advice, oh, you just luck into it like I do. So I'm walking down LaSalle Street one day, and Jim Garrell used to be an administrative law judge for the Illinois Human Rights Commission. I said, Jim, what's up? He says, well, I got some new news. I'm moving to, uh, my wife and I are moving to West Virginia. And he says, oh, don't, don't mention it because they don't even know yet at the Human Rights Commission that I'm leaving. So I have my application in like the next day. And then they find out he's leaving. So I get that job pretty easy. So every job I've gotten has gone something like that. Whenever you talk to the students, you just tell them, you know, it's easy. You just luck into it and it works out for you. Just walk down the South Street. (laughs) Absolutely. No wonder, uh, no wonder we had so many Kent students just doing laps down LaSalle when I was uh, in law school after we took pretrial litigation with Rich. <laughs> but no, I've been crazy lucky every step of the way. When I was working for Legal Assistance Foundation, Harold Washington was elected mayor of Chicago. And they came to LAF and they said, we're going to try to reform the Corporation Council office and get rid of all this patronage hiring and, and all this. So they, they just made job offers to a whole bunch of us out of the blue. So I, I actually went and I worked there for about one year before I realized that was not the place for me because no one ever told me 
that my main job was going to be defending police officers, the worst police officers, the ones who get in the biggest trouble. That was my job. No wonder we had such a hard time on that case when I was in school with you. It, it explains it. You just have, you've harbored a grudge against them. That must be it, Rich. Brings back bad <laughs> memories. Yeah. Well, let's back up for a second. So did you end up in employment law by luck too? Or is that, was there more of a concentrated effort there? Oh, no, that was luck. That was running into Jim Garrell on the street on LaSalle. I see. Okay. So prior to that, you didn't do any employment law whatsoever. No. And he says, oh, here's an open job. How difficult can it be? I'll apply for that one. But the truth is, employment law is not rocket science. I mean, it's relatively simple, substantively. Procedurally, it's a nightmare for people. But substantively, I mean, anybody can learn this. Well, I, yeah, you're preaching to the choir. I don't think my cue is that high per se, and I've been able to figure it out. That's underselling himself. But, you know, I mean, these tests are, it's manageable. I mean, a lot of what we do ends up being common sense. Oh, yeah. No. So, so as part of your career, so you, you, you work for LAF, you spend a brief time at the Corporation Council, and you also spend some time, at, like you described with Jim Garrett, at the Human Rights Commission. Can you talk about what that means for, let's say somebody doesn't do what we do, what is the Human Rights Commission? Well, it was a great idea. I, I forget when it was created in Illinois, but it's an adjudicative body that is a way less expensive alternative for people who want to bring discrimination cases. So if you don't want to be spending the money, filing fees and everything to go in the court, what's it cost to file a jury trial in Circuit Court of Cook County these days? About $650, I think. This was all free. And, and you could file your charge at the Illinois Department of Human Rights and wait for it to get through the investigative process or at a certain point, they had one year to complete an investigation. And if they didn't do it, you could go on. And now your case is in front of a judge, uh, an administrative judge at the Human Rights Commission. And that's the job I inherited from Jim Garrell. So it was, you know, and that was my education, you know, learning about employment law, because the lawyers would educate you on both sides. And, you know, they would try the case and then they would write these post-trial briefs. And so if that's all you do for a few years, you pretty much figure out what the case law is out there and you figure out uh, what's going on. So we would make the decisions in these cases and issue a written opinion. And then the people, either party, could appeal it to the full commission. And if they didn't like that, they could appeal it to the appellate court of Illinois. So besides those reasons you just mentioned that, you know, obviously it's a cheaper way of filing a case that you can possibly get yourself in front of a judge faster. Are there other major differences to filing a lawsuit or bringing your case in the commission as opposed to, say, the Circuit Court of Cook County or if you file a federal claim as well in, in the Northern District of Illinois? Well, you know, the conventional wisdom is plaintiffs like juries. So if you go to the Human Rights Commission, you're giving up the possibility that a jury is going to feel very bad for you and award a lot of compensatory or punitive damages. So at the commission, you're mostly going to win your lost wages and maybe your job back too, but your lost wages is the main thing that they, that they award. And, and you know, 
these administrative law judges, you hear one case after another, after another. So everything bounces off you after a while. You've heard it all. You've seen the worst sex harassment described to you, the worst racial discrimination. So you get, you know, you're, those judges aren't going to be moved by their emotions and award you some huge sum of money. So I think that's the downside for plaintiffs at the Human Rights Commission. What's the typical timeline? So once you get into the Human Rights Commission from that starting point to getting a decision from the commission or from an ALJ? Oh my, they've gotten so slow in the past few years. When I worked there, we had to have that decision written in 30 days. Within 30 days of the of the end of the, the hearing. And now I have cases that have sat there for years. I'm not exaggerating. Years we're waiting for either a decision from the administrative judge or then the decision from the commission to accept it or reverse it. I don't know why they are that slow, but they are unbelievably slow. And it frustrates my client. Your clients probably say the same thing to you. Do something. What the heck is going on here? Can't you do something about this? No is typically the answer you can't. Didn't, wasn't when they, and I don't remember if this is when the Workplace Transparency Act got passed or this was something separate, but I seem to remember at the, so Neil, for folks who are not NILA lawyers, we hold a Seventh Circuit conference every year where our attorneys meet and we'll do an educational program. And one year I remember, gosh, I don't even remember who gave the presentation, but I thought they reformed the number of judges where you had a certain number of part-time folks and they technically cut down the number, but now they're all supposed to be full-time. Am I imagining that or did that? Well, I think that's the commissioners, right? Yeah. In terms of, of judges, how many do they have? Do they have four now? I think they only have four, three or four. Yeah. So they have pretty huge caseloads. How does discovery typically work? Is it the same as it would be in state court or is it better? Or uh, good, good point. I forgot to mention it's it, it, there. There are no depositions. That's another reason that it's cheap because clients are often surprised. If you take a deposition, somebody's got to pay for that court reporter to show up or these days do it virtually uh, and then create the transcript. And those depths in an employment case, as you guys know, that can run a thousand dollars a depth. And and so if you take three or four depositions, there's three or four thousand dollars that the client has to pay. So there are no depositions at the Human Rights Commission, which is another reason it's designed to be cost effective. But to make up for it, they give you unlimited written discovery. So if you can think of a hundred questions. A hundred interrogatories that you want to send to the company, you can do it. And they pretty much have to answer them. So a lot of written discovery, but no depositions. So having having had the experience on the commission, so I guess last procedural question about it. So where is the commission? It's obviously not in a courthouse, right? Oh, it's located in the lovely uh, Thompson Center at 100 West Randolph Street. On the fifth floor, if any of you folks have been inside the Thompson Center recently, you will notice that it is in a state of great decay. I don't think they have spent a dime at the Thompson Center in the past several years. Like if I've noticed the doorknob came off the men's room on the fifth floor one day a few years ago, it is still off. There is a spot on the rug in the Human Rights Commission where I spilled a cup of coffee in the late 1980s, 
it's still there. So th this is what we're dealing with. But, you know, you guys may remember when it first opened, and I'm not making fun of it, this was a revolutionary idea, the way the heating and cooling of the building was going to be done in a very, very eco-friendly, out there kind of a way. And unfortunately, it just didn't work. So the building would become just this roasting hot building with no air circulation, no way to open a window. And for a while, we were conducting these trials under those conditions. I mean, it had to be 100 degrees in these rooms. And I remember once the court reporter is sitting there and you hear him typing away, typing away, typing away, and the typing is getting slower and slower. And I look over and she just hits the, the, the floor, just passes out, out of her chair, onto the floor. So that's what we were dealing with there for quite a while. <laughs> wow. So candidly, I haven't been to the Thompson Center in a while. I used to go there more often because it used to have the only Taco Bell in the loop, but that changed. <laughs> so I think Max was alluding to this before. So what lessons have you kind of incorporated from the from your work as an ALJ into your teaching? Oh, that's, that's a good question. Well, I, I, I like to tell the stories, but I think they're more than stories because uh, when you sit there and you're being the neutral, you're being the judge, you really see what works and what doesn't work. And, and when lawyers or, or parties are trying to con you or, or exaggerate the story, I'm going to put a little more spin on the story, you know, to try to make my point. Uh, so you start to figure out what not to do if, if you're practicing law and you're trying to influence a judge or a jury because you really see all kinds of lawyers and all kinds of parties when you do hearing after hearing after hearing like that. So I think that was probably the biggest takeaway for me is watch how you're behaving. You don't be a jerk. Be respectful to the judge. Don't snow them. You're rarely going to be able to fool them. Go with your story. You don't have to embellish it. And I'm assuming uh, this applies. On the defense side, I'll add one more thing. On the defense side, don't tell the stupid lie. Because if you lie about everything, then you are disbelieved on everything. Like judges and juries don't sit there going, oh, well, he's lying when he says he never actually touched her. Okay. But maybe the other things he said were true. It doesn't work that way. They believe you or they don't believe you. So I think my walkaway message was credibility. That's literally what I just wrote down too. And I'm assuming this applies both to um, the hearing itself or the trial and also what they file in terms of their paperwork and documents and stuff like that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you're not going to snow a judge with, with and, and the other thing you learn is that what judges really want you to argue the facts. Because like I was talking to Judge Pallmeyer and she said, well, you know, I've heard hundreds of sex harassment cases. I don't need lawyers to write me a brief saying, oh, this is the law of hostile environment. Here's what the Farragher case said. I already know what I think is severe or pervasive. So don't waste half your brief just citing a bunch of case law that I've read a hundred times. Argue the facts. Tell me why the facts make this severe or pervasive. So that's, that was a takeaway. I think that's, it's interesting you say that because I feel like without 
all the years of experience you've had, I've started to come to a similar realization myself. Like, unless there is a question of what the law is, I, I, I almost feel like whether it's a demand letter that we would send to initiate a case or anything else, we all roughly know what the law is, right? So unless there's something unique about the, how the facts of that case interplay with the law, I, 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 I almost feel sometimes like, who's even reading this? And in law school, what do we do? Just the opposite. We drill into the students that to get an A, you fill it up with every case you can find and describing what the court said, even if the judges read it a hundred times. And I, I think that's, that's been a mistake in, in teaching legal writing. Well, one thing I never understood, and I agree with that 100% with what you just said, is when attorneys or law students will spend about a page, page and a half explaining what the Rule 56 standard is for summary judgment. <laughs> we all know what it is. That can be two sentences and then you can move on. Judge Paul Meyer said to me, I never want to read that again. <laughs> the description of what is the test and summary judgment. I think the, it, to me, it's always felt like the one exception to that is where you've got the kind of the something that's not the run. And, and, and I don't mean to say that like sexual harassment can never be run of the mill. It's always horrific when it happens or racial or, 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 or whatever. But if you've got a unique case, right, where it doesn't fit so neatly into the law, like a gender discrimination case under the PricewaterhouseCoopers test, right, where it's not, it's not necessarily the run of the mill hostile work environment where you got lewd remarks, sexual misconduct or whatever, you've got more coded language, right? Or you've got stereotypes that you need to kind of, in that situation, explain how it interplays with the law. To me, that oh, feels yeah. like I the think, exception. Right. I, then I think you, you have to find case law that says, this is a little bit quirky, but look, other courts have dealt with this similar little bit quirky. And they found that this creates a genuine issue. And my case should not be dismissed. So yeah, definitely. So... Given, given the one year you spent in the Corporation Council and given the year you spent as an ALJ, you've been a neutral and you've now worked, you, you for one year at least, you spent, you spent time on the other side working for the defense. Did you feel like getting at least even limited exposure both as a neutral and as a defense side lawyer gave you a better perspective on being a plaintiff's lawyer? Oh, I, I think so. I, I think so. That, yeah, as you know, it's just a different mentality. And I do some defense cases. And it is just a different mentality. You're, you're looking at the case in an entirely different way. Let me think of all the things they should have to do. And let me see if I can find one or two of them that they didn't do, that they didn't jump through the hoop to state their claim. And let me think of every technicality I can come up with to throw it. I have a case right now where the other side is jumping up and down screaming, but your client never applied. She never filled out an application. And we keep saying, but she asked her supervisor, she told him 50 times, I want this promotion. I want this job. And she tried to go online and they were giving her the access. Well, she never applied. So, you know, you look for all the technicalities one of the ones that I always like is when you've got a harassment case where complaining is part of, you know, the, and, you know, there are nuances, like if it's a supervisor who can fire them and, and all of that. But generally in these harassment cases, somebody's got to complain. And I always like the technicality of, well, we have this designated complaint line and the client didn't follow it. They complained to anybody who would listen. It just wasn't the designated person. Although I've had pretty good luck with that in my cases. I think I can't cite the cases off the top of my head, but I think there are enough cases out there that say, if you 
reasonably made this known to somebody in management, it's okay if you didn't dot every I and you didn't call the 1-800 number hotline. So I think that law is pretty good on that for the, the employees. Do you feel like, so last time we talked about, you gave advice to the employees, to workers, and, you know, don't let this happen to you, or here's a way to avoid some trouble. Knowing that you do a little bit of management side stuff, putting that hat on, is there sort of flip side advice you'd say about what people can do with terminations or just things employers can do to, to limit, not stay at, not get away with stuff, but maybe limit their exposure to, you know, trouble? Well, you, you know my theory that 90% of the atrocities in workplaces are caused by low-level supervisors. And I think they give way too much trust and power to low-level supervisors making decisions about the complicated FMLA and what to say to an employee and whether to say it, discourage them or laugh at them for, that's ridiculous. And when it comes to a termination decision, you need more than the word of a supervisor because you don't know. That supervisor may have it in for this person for any number of reasons. Maybe they don't work well with women. Maybe they don't work well with minorities. But maybe it's not even that. Maybe they just don't like them. And they've been treating them more harshly than they treat everybody else. You can't take their word for it. That That's I would really root around and see what other supervisors had to say, what other employees had to say before you sign off on these, these terminations. So that's one thing. The, the other thing I would tell them is stop lying to the EOC. Because when, they, when somebody files a charge, these companies think, well, this isn't under oath. This isn't a court. So I'm going to write stuff and send it to the EOC and, and I'm just, you know, going to persuade them to throw this charge out. So you say things that aren't even remotely true. And when discovery occurs, it becomes obvious that's not what happened at all. I think, oh, man, defense lawyers, stop your clients from writing those crazy letters to the EOC. We tried a case a number of years ago. We had the letter blown up in a big cardboard with, you know, highlighting all the the crazy lies that they were trying to convince the investigator of. I, I, I would, I would uh, strongly suggest that attorneys discourage their clients from doing that. Well, I think that goes back to your point earlier about credibility. So what, you know, a lot of times, especially in the Department of Human Rights, there might be a questionnaire submitted or responses or a position statement. What recommendations do you have on the management side in terms of how they should be drafting those types of documents? like you would discovery in the lawsuit, just like it was an under oath interrogatory answer. And, and, and you should write it thinking that a judge is going to read it someday, that the jurors may even end up seeing that interrogatory answer if it comes up. And so these are just as serious as anything you file in a court. Uh, and a lot of the company, well, but you know, so many people think they are so smart. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm contradicting myself because this is not rocket science. Employment law is not rocket science. But here's what we do know. We do know the drill, the lawyers. We know how this works and how it plays out. 
And I'm always amazed by these, these people in the corporations who think that they would know better for some reason. I mean, I wouldn't be able to go in and, and do their job. I don't know why they think they can do ours. I had a judge when I was in criminal court one time, a guy wasn't getting along with his public defender and the judge, I think it was Judge Axelrude, who, I, who may have ended up in law division for us to use, but he, the guy wasn't getting along with the PD and he wanted to do it himself. And the judge goes, sir, what is, what is your, what is your profession when you're not, you know, locked up? <laughs> and the guy goes, I'm a mechanic. He goes, good. That's a great example. He goes, so I don't know anything about cars. If I took my engine apart without any knowledge of what it looked like at first and just decided I would wing it myself, do you think that would be a good idea? Well, no, that would be a terrible idea. It goes, great. Think about your case as an engine that needs to be taken apart. And if you take even one piece out of place, you're going to ruin the whole thing. Please talk to your lawyer and see if you can work it out because you, you, whether you like it or not, you're going to be much better served listening to what the lawyer knows. Oh, yeah, but it's just words is the way they're thinking. That's what lawyers do. It's just words. And anyone can say words and write words. I have a client right now who is uh, wants to be the co-pilot, you know? So you spend so much time explaining to them why that idea they just had isn't a very good idea. But, but they, they, I admire the confidence. I admire the uber confidence of some clients that they know better than anyone, even though it's the first lawsuit of their lives. Well, I think that's a great segue too, because I think you've spoken about this topic before. So how do you deal with that type of difficult client or how to manage a client's expectations, especially when they want to be the co-pilot? Well, I, 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 I know a lot of uh, folks uh, will listen to this and I, I don't make, what does it sound like I'm disparaging clients, but I think what lawyers try to do, or at least what they encourage us to do in seminars and in some of the literature is you really, <clears throat> you know, in the old days, lawyers just told the client what to do, period. Things are more collaborative now, but I think that you have to, you have to involve the client in every major decision, but you're trying to guide them to the right decision. So I am always telling my clients, this is your case. You're the one who gets the big win or suffers the big disappointment. And it's all on you. So I'm never going to tell you what to do. But let me give you some reasons why. And, and often war stories and cases you've had before help with this. Let me give you some reasons why you're more likely to get the big win if you do this. So you're trying to guide them without ordering them around. Yeah, I've, I've found constant communication is really helpful as a starting point. And then also just walking them through what the future is likely going to look like, just so they have a sense of, yeah, like if you're in the Human Rights Commission, how is that timeline? What's discovery looking like versus state court versus federal court? Oh, and you can't talk to clients enough. I mean, I even, if, if nothing is happening, I, I, if a week goes by, I'm emailing that client saying, hey, how's everything going? We haven't heard from a judge yet on our motion, but just checking in with you. You cannot communicate enough with them. I think that's great advice. I like to call clients every so often, even if there's nothing going on. Just so they know I'm still involved in the case, there's no update, where things are standing, what I'm trying to do to push the case forward, et cetera. Well, I heard a good analogy once that as lawyers, we carry around other people's problems so that they don't have to carry them around quite as much. So I think the client likes to know that you haven't forgotten about them. You're still carrying around their pile of problems and trying to do something about it. 
exactly. So and I think especially, in, I, I got this, you know, especially in employment law, because these things are very, it's not rocket science, but they are personal. It's very, it's a very difficult situation to be going through. And I think too, like, you know, the, they do become almost your problem, right? Because if you have a case where the client can't settle it because what's on the table is not acceptable, or it's just, you know, they're stuck in a job that they can't leave the job because it gives good benefits. Employer, you know, the case isn't strong enough to get it above a certain number, but the employer, you know, the employer can't fire him. You, you know, you're going to end up in a, a weird stalemate where the case keeps persisting and they're just in this terrible situation in perpetuity, right? Like, oh yeah. And I find in my experience, I think that clients feel better when they settle. I've heard that so many times where they will call back a week later and say, you know, I'm sleeping good for the first time in months. Psychologically, they're shutting the door on it. It doesn't hurt that now you have some money in your bank account instead of gambling it in outer space. But it's the the lifting of that, 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 that heavy weight that is on them while that case is going on. Oh, for sure. I mean, a certainty of something tomorrow is just going to feel better than gambling for something a decade from now. And, you know, I'm risk averse. So when they ask my opinion, I always say, well, don't ask me because I'm risk averse. I've never been inside a gambling casino. I've never bought a lottery ticket. But I, but I have friends who do, who like to take chances and they're okay if it doesn't work out. So I'm not going to tell you what your degree of risk aversion is. But if you're asking me, oh, give me $20,000 in my bank account next week instead of gambling with this case. So just to kind of circle back to this concept of experience, you know, you've spent a long time doing this. You talked about one of, you know, in our last show, one of the things you discussed was, you know, people's perceptions of what your employer employer can get away with have done a 180 where before they thought they could do anything. And now people think, you know, everything's illegal. But so in a similar vein, a lot of these laws have changed a lot too. You know, you've been practicing since the ADA, you know, when you started, the ADA was not a thing. There have been civil rights laws passed. Do you feel, how do you feel the playing field has changed? Is it more even now? Is it harder to win employment law cases easier, uh, just different problems? I, I think it's easier than it used to be as we whittle away at the employment at will, you can fire them for any reason or no reason. It's like Swiss cheese, right? The more holes get poked in that, the exceptions become bigger than the rule. And and they just keep going. Like just the other day, the city of Chicago, what passes an ordinance saying you have to give people paid time off to go get vaccinated. So these laws just keep coming from states, city, federal, and they mount. And I, I don't envy HR people. That they have to be whip smart these days to do that job. And they've got to be up on this. So there are so many ways an employer can mess up now. There are just so many more ways. So many of the Equal Pay Act, you know, I, I, I might have mentioned last time I was on, anytime a woman comes to see me, no matter what she's coming to see me about, I start talking about pay. And you'll be amazed how often you can find out there's a good equal pay claim out there too. There's so many ways for employers to mess up. Yeah, I don't envy HR folks. I mean, part of it too, there's, a, there's not always definitive answers to these questions. And so even going back to the low level supervisor situation, you know, you, you talk to one supervisor, they may say, oh, we have ABCD reason for a separation. And then two weeks later, you're getting a letter from Richard Gonzalez threatening a claim. And 
you know, that's a tough spot to be in. Have you noticed a change too in judges in terms of how they evaluate these types of claims and their sense of employment law? I don't know. You've always had, and the public doesn't believe this, but as you guys know, the judge that you get is important. I mean, when we file a federal case, the first thing we find out is who's the judge going to be. And then I will call the client and say, hey, we got judge so-and-so, I'm happy. Or eh, we got judge so-and-so, we, maybe we should rethink our settlement position here. And the client is stunned and says, why? Aren't these judges all the same? And no, they're not. Some judges grant summary judgment and throw these cases out of court at rates way higher than other judges do. And that's, but I understand why the public would be surprised by that because it shouldn't be that way, right? It shouldn't be, but it is. So very important who your judge is. And where the case is, right? Oh. Whether you're in state or federal. Or the oh, commission, yes. right. Yeah. Well, and I mean, the, some of the stuff that we've all started to see now is the way that federal courts and the state courts in Illinois have interpreted certain laws are just flat out different. Like uh, you take something like the Gender Violence Act, you know, I don't think it's come up in front of the Seventh Circuit on appeal yet, but at the district court level, like that stuff, district court judges just are not attaching corporate liability to that statute. They're just flat out saying we don't see it in the statute. Whereas at the Illinois appellate court, they're saying the exact opposite. So at our firm, when we've got a discrimination case, that's got a, a, a gender violence component, it's sort of a no brainer. Yeah, I've, I've seen what you're talking about recently. We were briefing the ministerial exception. That's the rule of law that, that is gaining ground that it's hard to sue religious organizations that they should be allowed to get away with more than your typical employer. And I was noticing the gap between the way a lot of federal courts look at that and the way Illinois appellate courts have looked at it. And the latter is much more favorable to employees than some of that federal law. I think in general, just the way that the federal courts have been filled for the last, I don't know how long, have made it a pretty clear cut and dry reason why a lot of us are starting to explore state court as a more viable option, just because you're sort of having a different fight. Well, and, well, I think and as you know, it's a different jury pool in, in, in right. Cook County. I mean, I've had the experience in federal court when they bring up 40 jurors to choose from, and th there are 40 white people who live in Fox River Grove. And there's nothing wrong with Fox River Grove, but the lack of diversity to choose from is a difference. It's a big difference. Well, and even it's, some of this is easy to attract too. A simple thing is like in, in non-compete worlds, a two-year rule is literally night and day between if you're in a federal court or a state court. So you have yeah. attorneys who are gonna form shop because you have to. If, you ha if you're representing an employee who worked for a year and they have a non-compete, you're going to go to the Daily Center versus going to the Dirksen building. Yeah. And, and you know, I, I don't mean to sound like I, 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 when I say, oh, you can get these all white juries in federal court, it's not that there's anything wrong with that. But I think a lot of discrimination law is unique because the jurors have to draw some inferences sometimes. Why did they treat the guy the way they did? And if you've never had, a bad experience in your life, maybe you can't relate to that as well. And you're willing to write off that bad treatment to some other reason. So I think that's to be expected. 
I think that's why police misconduct cases can be so hard to pursue, right? Because you're in this Northern District of Illinois, in Chicago anyway, right? Because you're in the Northern District jury pool, which pulls heavily from white affluent areas where people are less likely to have had negative interactions with law enforcement. So it's a lot harder, right. to, it's a lot harder to, to get them to relate to feeling like you need to run from the cops. Oh, I think absolutely. I'd be right. If it hasn't happened to you, you know, one of my sons, I always tell the story in high school when they were learning to drive, my son was never stopped by a cop. And I'm sure he was being just as reckless as anybody else. His friend, Andre, African-American kid, was repeatedly stopped by the cops. And he's driving his parents. They were a wealthy family. He's driving a very expensive car of his parents. And he would be pulled over a lot. So I think a lot of it is the life experiences you've had. Yeah, I mean, I tell this story a lot because to me, this embodies why employment law is so interesting. I mean, oh, I wouldn't you guys be so bored if you were doing like antitrust law or something? Well, that's like, really funny because I thought I was going to do antitrust law when I was in law school. <laughs> but employment law is just interesting and you get one after another. But here's the one that took the cake for me. So a few years back, uh, a woman is a school teacher at a private school in Nevada, and she applies online to, for an opening at a private school in Chicago. So here's the totally different stories, my client's story. So I go online, I apply. We have a number of very lengthy telephone interviews. They offer me the job. They give me a start date. I show up. And it's kind of funny, the day I show up, it's almost like they were surprised to see me. And they said, well, you know, enrollment isn't what we thought it was going to be. So for today, why don't you just shadow one of these other teachers? Just spend the day with her. So she does. At the end of the day, they say to her, well, we, the enrollment just isn't there. Hang, hang loose. You know, we're, we're going to see. We're trying to boost enrollment. Maybe we can, we can use you and we, we can start within the next few weeks. Weeks are going by. Pretty soon they stop returning her phone calls altogether. And finally she gets them on the phone and they say, we got no job for you. And she says, but I, I left my, I quit my job in Nevada. I gave up my apartment. I moved to Chicago. I rented an apartment. What do, you, what do you mean you have no, you hired me. So we sue. That's her story. Here's their story. We never hired her. We would never hire somebody on the basis of a telephone interview the day she came to Chicago that was supposed to be the interview we, we never offered her the job and, and by the way she was had a bunch of piercings and tattoos and uh, that doesn't fit with our image so see we never would have hired somebody with piercings and tattoos any so that that just uh, never happened so what do you do with stories that are this divergent so we go out and we find the teacher that she spent the day with. And the teacher says, I didn't see any tattoos or piercings. And my client says, well, no, I, I always cover up. I, I don't go in the school with the piercings in and, and tattoos visible. Oh, but my Facebook site and her Facebook site is covered with photos of the tattoos and the piercings. Again, now this is, you know, a good example of that employer is going to try to embellish this a little bit. Let's give it a little more spin. But they didn't know anything about piercings and tattoos when they told her she wasn't working there. But isn't that a great story? Did they hire her or didn't they? 
who moves across the country if they're unsure whether they've been hired? Paul's story was just that. So to me, that's just the, the classic story. And we came down to an hour before the trial. You know, we went through the discovery. We came down to about an hour away before we settled that case. And to this day, what happened? I don't know. What was the true story? I was just going to ask you, because it's typically three sides to a story. You know, what they said, what your client says, and then the truth. But it sounds like here we don't still know if she was hired or not. We we will never know. And then they did some rooting around in discovery. They found out that she was going to enroll in school part-time in Chicago. So they said, hey, you were coming to Chicago anyway. So see, you're lying. So just amazing. Just amazing. But I, I like that story as uh, what keeps us on our toes, what keeps us, uh, what keeps this interesting for us employment work. If there were, if there were no fact disputes, we'd never have jobs. And, and, you know, a client said to me the other day, well, can't you bring perjury charges against people who lie in court? And I said, think about it for a minute. In every single case, somebody is lying. Yeah. Most of the time, somebody, maybe they're misremembering, maybe it's not intentional lying, but you know, otherwise the case is decided on summary judgment or, or a motion to dismiss. Somebody is, is telling a story that is not accurate in court every single case. Rich, anything you'd like to plug today? Anything you're working on? Anything you got going that you want to share? Well, I wish I could say yes. I should, I should try to write something interesting. I'm writing this boring article about this class that I teach about practical skills. You took it a long time ago, but it's just for like other nerdy academic types like me who go, oh, this sounds like it'd be fun. Why don't I try this? But I think it's important to expose law students to the real deal instead of just reading cases and taking exams. Well, and practitioners, when is that article coming out? Oh, I don't know. I've been, I've been, you know, tinkering and tinkering with it. And somebody, one of them, was it Walters Kuehler finally said, yeah, I think we think we can publish that. So I'm still fooling around with it. Well, let us know when that comes out. We'll, we'll bump it, yeah, on the podcast. So Rich, if people want to find you to talk to you, to hear your war stories, to seek legal advice or anything in between, how can they do that? Oh, just go to the website, kentlaw.edu. One word, kentlaw.edu. And I'm up there with a photo of myself from about uh, 30 years ago, and I don't look anything like that, because just yesterday, I taught the last class of my 33rd academic year at Chicago. So, yeah, I don't look anything like that. (laughs) That's incredible. I mean, I don't look anything like my bio picture, because right now I have a COVID beard. So I think we all have an excuse. I'm just jealous because I can't grow a beard like that despite being 33. So, But Max, see, you're going to look young a long time from now, and, and you can't buy that. That's, that's a wonderful thing. I appreciate that. I'm not complaining in the slightest. I used to like complain and moan when I got ID'd going to the movies or buying liquor, and now I'm just like, you know what? Good. Thank you. I'm happy to be young. <laughs> Plus, plus, then my opponents think I'm a kid, and I don't know what I'm talking about. So it gives me at least a partial element of surprise. Oh, yeah. So, Rich, thanks so much for doing this with us again. This is always so much fun to 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 shoot the whatever with you and, and hear what you have to say. Yeah, thank you for well, coming Thank back. you, guys. I appreciate it. Our podcast is intended to provide general overviews of employment law. The statements and opinions provided in this podcast are just that, the host's opinion. We are not your attorney. This podcast does not create an attorney-client relationship, and it's not intended to provide specific legal advice. For legal questions, please consult with an attorney.